Let's, uh, let's listen again uh, to Jesus' words here in Luke chapter 12, uh, where he says to his disciples, there at the end he says in verse 32, he says, Do not be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Uh, Like many of you, I woke up this morning to more news uh, about violence and death and other mass shooting. Um, There's one in El Paso, another in Dayton. I'm sure most of you guys have uh, heard about this at this point. Uh, I want to start tonight's service just by recognizing that as followers of Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom of God, that it's our job to, to be explicit, to be forthright, to name, to confess individual and systemic injustices that distort and destroy God's vision for human flourishing. It's our job to do this. And so, I, we unequivocally name the sin, the evil, which is white supremacy and nationalism, as an affront to and a distortion of God's gift of human flourishing revealed in Christ. We grieve. We lament. We pray. Lord, have mercy. I just want to affirm that if, if the gospel is in any way um, God's announcement of hope and salvation and life to a world of sin and death, then we at least have to reckon with how the gospel speaks to a situation like this. And so I don't want to avoid proclaiming the gospel tonight and not open up at least. We don't want to fix, we don't want to explain away, we just want to open up how the gospel speaks to a world like this. Because it does speak here. And so, we affirm tonight the good news, Christ the King. That God is fully invested and delighted in offering us life abundant in Jesus. God is fully invested and delighted in offering us life abundant in Jesus. And that means, Christ the King, that we can live as if our well-being is completely secure in the kingdom of God. We can live as if our well-being is completely secure in the kingdom of God. We, the good news, Christ the King, is that we don't need to convince or to cajole God to act on our behalf. We don't need to convince or to cajole God to join our agenda. We don't need to 
do that. We don't need to anxiously take matters into our own hands out of fear that our well-being is at risk. We do not need to live from fear. Christ the King, there is nothing that we can lose by entrusting ourselves to God's kingdom that we didn't want to lose anyway. There is nothing by entrusting ourselves to God's kingdom that we would lose that we didn't want to lose anyway. And the things that are worth keeping that we do lose, there's nothing that God won't raise from the dead that need to be raised. That's the good news tonight, Christ the King. So as we look at our world, I want to suggest... And by the way, I mean, this is, this is so... There's a lot going on in all this. And at any time, if you want to talk about any of this, please, let's, let's talk about, about uh, what you see, what we see happening in, in the events unfolding around us in our world. But I want to suggest that, um, that these acts of racialized hatred at root, in some, to some extent, spring from anxiety and fear. They spring from the desire to strive to secure well-being out of fear that well-being is at risk. And then that striving gets um, spun through theological, a theological distortion about who God is revealed in Jesus Christ and also about how God's image rests in humanity. And so I just want to name and, and own as part of this process that, that whether or not that anxiety and fear, um, the anxious striving to secure well-being that's rooted in a theological distortion of who God is and what it means that, that God's image rests in other humans, that that, whether or not it expresses itself in, in the racialized hatred that we have been seeing, that we have been seeing, that it still lives within us. It still lives within the world that we live in, whether or not it expresses itself in those ways. And it's our job, as people who believe that the first act of Christian discipleship is repentance, to be the kind of people who are ready to own and confess where that is true about us. It's just true of us. God's not surprised by it. (laughs) We're not going to surprise God if we confess that today. We live in a world that is often good at denouncing the individual acts, hate, individual acts um, of hate. And in a world that's often good at, at creating scapegoats. But we, as a world, lack the ability to address the deeper issue. In fact, we live in a world, and maybe you felt this this morning, I felt this this morning, we live in a world that longs for ways to access what is going on deeper. A world that longs to access, like, what is that root system that's producing this distorted fruit? We, we long to access that. So one of the things that we're recognizing, that I recognize, is, is, I, is I seek... Um, to entrust myself to, uh, 
to, the, to my well-being, to the security of God's kingdom, to the abundance of God's kingdom, that, that my entrusting myself to that always gets, even, even though I want to do that, and I think that everybody in, in this room wants to do that too, we want to be the kinds of people who entrust ourselves to, the, to God's abundance and his kingdom. But I so often get short-circuited in doing that and really entrusting myself and really living out that I am, am completely secure in the kingdom of God. I get short-circuited by, all the, my, by my fear of the what-ifs. I always get short-circuited by my fear of the what-ifs. What if this happens? What if people think this about me? What if I lose this? What if I can't get that back? What if I'm, I'm going to be found out? What if, what if? I... So much of my life, Christ the King, can you identify with this? So much of my life has been lived out of the fear that I'll be found out for who I truly am. Out of the fear that my hustle won't get me what I need. Or out of the fear that resources for flourishing will run out. I've lived so much of my life, I've even done holy things out of the fear of those things. And so, because of that fear, instead of entrusting myself to the reality that I'm completely secure in the kingdom of God, I end up hiding and hustling and hoarding. And the thing is, is that, is that hiding and hustling and hoarding, that's, it all lives beneath the surface. I could do that, and you guys might not even know. But Christ the King, the good news is that, that all those things, that kind of disorientation that lives beneath the surface, the, the surface of our lives, that Jesus has come to disrupt those things in our lives. That Jesus has come to disrupt that, to call us into the open so that we can live fully entrusted with our well-being to the abundant life of God. Christ the King, Jesus wants to disrupt that in us tonight. Are you ready for that? In Luke chapter 12, Jesus reveals that God does not need to be convinced or cajoled to join our agenda. <laughs> Amen, right? <laughs> Amen, Ewan. I appreciate that, bud. <laughs> More than you know. We do not need to convince. Jesus reveals that we do not need to convince God to get on our side, to join our agenda. Instead, Jesus paints a contrasting picture of a different world, a different world altogether than the world in which people have to live constantly trying to get God to join their agenda and to act on their behalf, and when he doesn't, to take matters into their own hands. Jesus paints a different world in which he invites his disciples to live, to live in the kingdom of God. A different world, the world of God's kingdom. A world which God delights to give. Where we can live as if our well-being is completely secure. Jesus invites us to be oriented, to be tethered toward this reality, not disoriented in anxious striving and fear. This orientation and disorientation is, is what Jesus is pulling together there when he's talking about seeking the kingdom in the very end of our passage where he says, 
Um, where your tre- a well-known saying of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where your treasure is, where your desires are, where your longings are, is where your heart is oriented. It is where your heart is tethered. It will always pull you along. So Jesus is inviting us into a certain kind of orientation, an orientation toward the kingdom of God and out of disorientation into anxious striving and fear. This scene in Luke 12 is really important, how it opens, because it opens with a person, it says from the crowd. I mean, you can imagine like some guy being like, hey, Jesus, I got something to say. Anybody got something to say tonight? Um, Jesus, I got something to say. Um, and, and so this guy comes in and he says, Jesus, make a judgment. Make a judgment about uh, this inheritance. Tell my brother um, to split the inheritance with me. And so the situation is that this person has recognized that Jesus is an authoritative, authoritative teacher, an authoritative religious leader. And it is not uncommon in Jesus' day for authoritative religious leaders to make judgments, to make pronouncements on issues of justice like this. That's not an unusual thing to do. He's just recognizing Jesus as an authoritative religious leader, inviting Jesus to play a role that authoritative religious leaders would often play. And in fact, it seems like the situation in here is that, is that in the ancient world you get your inheritance when the person, um, your father, presumably, that, who's giving you your inheritance has passed away, has died. That's when you get your inheritance. So that seems what happens. This person has come. He's in a dispute with his brother. He says, tell my brother to give me the inheritance. And of course, Jesus says, well, Jesus does the Jesus thing that Jesus often does. And Jesus refuses to answer the question. Jesus refuses to answer the question. He says, who's made me arbiter and judge over you? Well, strictly speaking, Jesus, the Son of God, actually is the arbiter and the judge of the whole world. <laughs> but, but you see, look, notice what Jesus is doing. Notice what Jesus is doing, because this is what Jesus always does throughout his ministry. And what Jesus does here is so, so important, because Jesus, this, this person wants to leverage Jesus' authority to act in his favor. But Jesus is, is revealing that God is not the kind of God who needs to be conjoled and convinced. Jesus refused to be cajoled into endorsing this man's agenda for securing his well-being. Even a legitimate worry about the security of his well-being. He may need this inheritance in order to live his life. But Jesus refuses that. He refuses to be caught up in the agenda because Jesus perceives that the thing is not the thing. Jesus perceives that the thing that the man is coming to him with, the issue that he's so concerned about, the thing that he must have decided, that there are actually more important things going on. There are deeper issues that actually get at the things that matter most. And so the way that we see Jesus uh, responding throughout his ministry, throughout all his ministry, the way that we see him responding here in, in Luke chapter 12, and the way that he continues to be present with us is that he often refuses to answer the things that seem like the things so that he can create space, so that we can access with him the things that matter most, the kinds of things that we often don't get access to because we don't know how to get behind the thing. Christ the King, part of the good news tonight is that Jesus wants to lead us behind the things that we keep getting grinding over so that he can lead us to the deeper issues and into the abundance of God's life. That's what Jesus is doing. 
Jesus comes not simply to treat the symptoms. He comes to heal the root cause so that we can walk in wholeness in God's kingdom. Jesus wants to access the deeper issue. Um, Someone actually came to me once with an issue like this. Like exactly like this. Um, When I was at a church, not this church, but I was at a different church. I was an associate pastor and I got a call from... Um, a, a, a woman, uh, a single woman who was in her 50s and said that she wanted to have a serious conversation with me and I was kind of intrigued about like why this woman would have chosen uh, me, the, the young pastor on staff, to like have a serious conversation with. And so she comes in my office one day and the serious conversation that she has with me is like almost this exact issue. Um, she's in a dispute with her siblings over some inheritance over land. And what she's explaining to me is that, that um, she and her siblings have inherited this land from um, their, their parents who have died, and they want to give her more land, um, but they wanna, uh, so they want to give her the bigger portion of the land, but keep for themselves the smaller portion that actually is worth more money because it has trees on that they can harvest or something. There are some of you who may understand all that a little bit better than I do. And so she was coming to me as an authoritative, authoritative religious leader, basically in order to tell her whether she was right or wrong. And so I'm just asking you to just like imagine with me, like what kind of work would it have done in that woman's life in that moment if I would have just told her whether or not she was justified or not justified for refusing to sign the legal documents about the division of this land? What kind of work would that have done in her life? And so I start asking her about like the relationship with her siblings, and it's not a good one. I, I, and she's kind of getting frustrated with me because I'm refusing to answer her question. And eventually I ask her, I say, one of the things that seems like you need to, to wrestle with is, do you, are you prepared? Do you want, do you care more about the correct division of this inheritance than you do about restoration with your family? To me, that's the critical question. I'm not sure I ever got an answer from her. I know she left kind of frustrated. And the thing is, is like the only reason that I was able to do that kind of work with her is because someone had done that kind of work for, with me multiple times. In, in a previous setting that I've been a part of, I had gone to the, the pastors um, who were part of my com- community complaining about things. Complaining about frustrations that I had, what I thought were really legitimate frustrations and pains and hurts in my life that I wanted them to fix for me. And it was so confusing at first why they systematically refused to give me the yes or no answer to the questions. But they continued to point me to the deeper issues, to make space, so that I could reckon with what was actually going on in the subterranean levels of my life. This is what Jesus was doing. And so in response, Jesus tells a parable about a rich fool. The, the, the person is foolish because of this rich fool's, uh, his formula uh, for securing. He himself is not a fool. It's, it's that his formula for securing uh, well-being, his formula for securing abundant life is foolish. And it's made evident in the kind of parable that Jesus tells. Jesus tells a parable that to us and to anyone who would have been listening would have been like clearly obvious. Clearly, this guy wasted his stuff. Like he did, like it was just clear. It's like absurdly clear. And so this is, this is a parable about wealth, but it's also a parable about disorientation. 
about a person who... Uh, so Jesus is, is telling this parable to create space, to draw attention to not just the evils of, of money or greed, um, it's that, definitely, but also what a life, a disoriented life looks like. And this parable reveals the distorted deep belief and, and the deeper disorientation of this rich man's world of self-enclosure. He's just all enclosed in on himself. You read the parable and he's like, my stuff, you know, he gets all this excess stuff, my stuff, my barns, what will I do? I will eat. It's all enclosed in on himself. It's like there's nobody else in his world. The man is already rich when the parable begins and he, he's blessed with un, unexpected abundance. But the thing is that we see that even though that this rich man is blessed with unexpected abundance, he can't imagine. It's like he can't even think that this season of abundance could be used for anything other than building bigger containers for his stuff and then sitting back and wallowing in it. It's like it's supposed to be absurd. You're supposed to be like, wow, like how, I mean, that's a, that's a crazy degree of disorientation that you can't even imagine that, that it would occur to you that you could use all that abundance to bless others. It's, it's this self-enclosed, disoriented world. And so the man's relationship to his wealth meant his life was fundamentally disoriented. And so all the language about isolation and self-absorption is meant to signal that to the listener. Disorientation. And in, in the parable, this man dies in his self-isolation created by his relationship to his wealth. At the very end of the parable, the question is raised, who's going to get all this stuff because he can't take it with him? Probably what's going to happen because he can't take it with him is that his resource, I mean, his inheritance, it's a, this is a, it's a distorted, broken situation. And that means that all of this stuff is going to be probably devoured in an inheritance battle over the family from whom he is clearly disconnected. Do you catch the move that Jesus just made? Because the, the fictional man in this parable could probably be the guy's dad. Jesus is, highlight, Jesus is trying to get behind the surface and highlight the kind of, of world, the self-enclosed, devouring world that comes from disorientation from not being able to access the things that matter most. And so then what Jesus does is he turns in verses 22 through 34, and then he begins to describe a different kind of life. If that was a world of disorientation and self-closure and selfishness, he begins to describe a different kind of life, one oriented toward the abundant gift of God's kingdom. He says in God's world, we don't need to, to seek out what we will eat and drink. We don't need to, to live anxiously, to anxiously strive to secure our well-being. He says, rather, we can, we can seek, we can orient our life toward the kingdom of God. And we could spend hours and hours talking about a good definition of the kingdom of God, but just for our purposes, very succinctly and briefly, what Jesus is getting at here, at least in part, by the kingdom of God is, is God's world. A world of abundant life in God. The world of God's abundant life that God is recreating under the loving shepherding of Jesus. The kingdom of God is God's abundant life. A world of God's abundant life. Think of an entire, entire way of being, an entire life that God is recreating in Jesus Christ. That's lived under the loving shepherding of Jesus. So orientation to the kingdom of God 
means living as if God really does delight in giving us this reality. And then in recognizing that the kind of gift that God gives, it's not like an ice cream cone. It's like something that we have to live in. It's the kind of gift that like, we receive it because we live into it, because we, tr- we trust that we actually live as if our well-being is secure in the kingdom of God. It's a life motivated not by the fear that will be found out, or that our hustle won't work, or that resources for flourishing will run dry, but by the settled conviction that we simply have nothing to lose by ceasing our hiding and hustling and hoarding. It looks like living under the settled conviction that we have nothing to lose by ceasing our hiding and hustling and hoarding and entrusting ourselves to the kingdom of God. It's living out of the settled conviction that by entrusting our well-being to God's kingdom, that the things that we we could lose, that we actually want to lose anyway, and the kinds of things that we would want to keep that will be taken for us, that God will bring them back from the dead. And then Jesus says, What's, what's key about this is, is that as we orient our lives towards God, God's kingdom, that it actually frees us. It frees us for living not in a world of self-enclosure and selfishness, but for living for the well-being of others. He says in verse 33, he says, Don't be afraid, but just sell your possessions and give alms. It frees us. Living as if our well-being is secure. If we have nothing to lose besides what we need to lose anyway, then we can actually live for the sake of others. Christ the King, God is fully invested in and delights in giving us the abundance of his life. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Today we can walk in the confidence that our well-being is completely secure in the kingdom of God. We don't need to convince or conjole God to join our agenda or anxiously take matters into our own hands out of the fear that our well-being is at risk. And this just begins by submitting our agenda. The problem isn't that we have an agenda. We've all got an agenda. <laughs> we've all come here with like an agenda for what our well for how to secure our well-being. Like we've all got an agenda tonight. That's not the bad news. So the move is just to submit it, just to name it, just to submit it. Submit our agenda so so that with Jesus, Jesus can uncover those disorientations in us, those places where we want to hide or hustle or hoard. And the good news is that even, even if our agenda is good, even if our agenda is like in some way aligned with God's kingdom, that God is already fully invested and delighted in bringing it about, and we don't have to do anything. <laughs> right? Even if it's the right thing. It's like, this is just, we can live secure. So keep in mind that this is not about trying harder not to feel anxious or afraid, right? This is not about shouting down the bad feelings until they go away. Like, this, this, is, about, this is about what we, the, 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 the disoriented things that we do from our anxiety and fear. I've got a lot of anxiety and fear, not a lot, I've got a, I've got a, a nameable amount of anxiety and fear with me tonight. <laughs> The point is not that I would ignore that it's there or try to shout it down. The point is that I don't have to live from these things. I can submit all the ways that that fear is leading me into hiding and hoarding and hustling. 
That's, that's the, so much of the work here. It's just naming and submitting that. Getting curious about how I tend to, when I'm faced with situation, how, what are the what-ifs that come up for me <laughs> that keep me from living as if I'm securing God's kingdom? Christ the King, what are the what-ifs for you? The good news is that we, our well-being is completely secure. We can live as if our well-being is completely secure in the kingdom of God. So I invite you just to respond to that tonight in whatever way seems best. Um, We'll have a chance to respond in prayer ahead.